0: Genesis chapter two, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Dillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Haidekal. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him." Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us and what we are not make us for the glory of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. So Genesis two, man, there, there are more touch points, I think in this chapter of the Bible that the rest of scripture picks up and deals with than maybe any other chapter in all of scripture, which makes this a bit of a daunting Text for a sermon. So um, I've carved out two hours for a sermon. I hope you guys all are brought your snacks. (laughs) So when the when the apostle John wants to tell us what eternity will be like in Revelation 21, he reaches for Genesis 2. When Jesus wants to ground our understanding of what marriage is like, he reaches for Genesis 2. When Paul wants to show us what union with Christ is like, it's Genesis 2. Solomon's building a temple. He models it after Eden in Genesis 2. Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28 is prophesying against the king of Tyre and his pride and reaches for Genesis 2 when the psalmist wants to show us the refuge and strength of God in Psalm 46. It's Genesis 2, just for starters. So we have to be selective today. We can't get into everything. But since our approach that we're going through this Genesis series our approach is to receive this word from God as a true story, right? The narrative is the focus. Then it's fitting today that we should look at how chapter two fits into this story that God is telling in the early chapters of Genesis. So we're gonna narrow our focus in at the exclusion of lots of really wonderful teachings and good God glorifying things. We're gonna narrow it in and look at the garden. And here's basically where I'm going with this whole thing the garden shows sin for what it really is by contrasting it to the generosity of God. In the garden, we can see and receive the generosity of God and see sin for what it really is. So our first point is simply the first garden. Now, Becca and I, uh, we enjoy to do charcuterie for dinner sometimes, which sounds pretentious, but it's really just because of the ease of the meal. You know, food prep is minimal within minutes. You can have this just lavish spread by popping a few jars and opening a few packages and slicing some cheese. And so it it feels like a feast fit for a king. So, you know, you've got your beautiful plates out with Mediterranean olives and bright vegetables and Italian cured meats and rich English cheeses and all these wonderful things. So the other night, um, was that last night? Recently, I was laying out this feast on the table uh, for dinner. And I had sort of this like joyful anticipation. Like, I love this. And I get to kind of treat my family and bring the kids into this wonderful experience with this delicious variety of food. And one of my kids comes up and says, Daddy, I'm hungry for Cheerios. Cheerios, right? Like this whole feast, delicacies from around the world and you want breakfast cereal. Do you know that feeling? That feeling like when your friend who you love gets a terrific job offer with great benefits and good pay and then they turn it down. You think, what are you doing? Or that feeling like watching a movie and the main character's got this terrific supportive boyfriend who loves her and then she cheats on him. What are you doing? This is why I don't watch The Devil Wears Prada anymore. Sorry if I spoiled that, it's been out like 20 years though. (laughs) What are you doing? That feeling is what we're supposed to have when we read the story of the first garden. Genesis two is the feast. Genesis three, the sin, turning it down. It's not like asking for Cheerios. It's like asking for cardboard. Genesis two that we just read, that Carol read for us, prepares us to be shocked at Genesis three, that's its role in the narrative. So we can learn tons of really good things from Genesis two and lots of good theology, but at the forefront of its teaching to us, we learn about the amazing generosity of God. And when we see that generosity for what it really is, then we're prepared to see sin for what it really is. Sin is simply accusing God of being stingy. You're the holdout God, you're holding back from me. Even though in Genesis two, God says, I've given you everything you could want or need. Sin's simply a rejection of God's generosity and an accusation from Adam and Eve that God didn't really want them to have nice things. But that's why we have Genesis two is to prove them wrong So in the story of the first garden, God provides everything that Adam needs for life. Everything he needs for life. He masterfully forms the man out of the dust. And then he breathes life into his nostrils. It's a very intimate moment. And so far in Genesis 1, God has created and God has made and God has called, right? These are the verbs associated with the work of God. But this is the first time in Genesis that God has formed, These are different words. This is the Hebrew word you would use of a potter forming a vessel out of clay. It's a very hands-on word. If you've ever done pottery, you know, it just, it's a very hands-on job. So God went beyond simply speaking life into existence with man. He formed him. He bent down and got clay on his hands when he made us. And then God sets this man apart from all other living creatures by personally breathing into his nostrils. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. Animals are alive without the personal breath of God. But as God's image bearers, God made us alive by the very spirit of God. It was sheer generosity. That dust creatures clay people like us would share in the life of God. That's amazing. So then God plants a garden in a region called Eden. Common mistake, Eden is the big region and there's a garden in Eden, right? Eden just means delight. So God looks over this earth he's created, chooses the place that he calls delight and then puts a garden there, which is like a concentration of delight. It's like, we love English gardening shows. What's that one called Gardener's World? They go into this bare patch of ground and they look at the features and they just decide how to make it as pleasant as humanly possible. God did that for us. It was a paradise crafted for man to dwell with God in harmony. And what's kind of surprising if you read ancient or even classical literature is that this isn't a quest story. You know, quest stories with the hero's journey, like Frodo questing to the mountain to destroy the ring or whatever, right? It's not a quest story. God just picks man up and puts him there. He didn't have to journey to paradise. He didn't have to earn paradise. It was a gift from God out of nothing but the loving generosity of his heart then God made to spring up from the ground every tree good for food. In other words, God gave the gift of life to the man and then he provided for his continued life by providing him all the sustenance and nourishment that he could need. So God didn't hand Adam seeds and a sickle and tell him to get to work and make something out of this wasteland. He planted in an orchard for him. But of all the trees that God planted, it said every tree good for food. Every tree was in this garden, but of all the trees, none could have been more glorious than the one in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. God didn't just provide for man's mortal life. God provided for eternal life through this one special tree. Adam wasn't going to just naturally inherently live forever but God wanted him to live forever. So he created him mortal and gave him access, free and open access to the tree of life by which he could eat freely and live with God. So God provided for Adam's life in every way. He made him, he breathed life into his nostrils, gave him food, a place to live, eternal life. But he didn't stop there. God also provided for their joy. He doesn't want his humans to live without joy. I don't know how long it took me to actually believe that about God. He didn't put the man and woman in a forest to forage for berries and roots. He put them in a garden to reap the bounties of the orchard. He didn't put them in a wilderness wasteland and tell them to make it beautiful. He put them in paradise and said, I have made it beautiful for you. This is the language of pleasure, joy, not necessity. Genesis 2.9 says, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Why? Because he wants to give you joy. He likes beauty and he thinks you might like beauty too. So good for food, check. Pleasant for the sight, Yeah. He cares about that too. In other words, you don't just get a room, you get a room with a view. And what is that but generosity? Sheer goodness of God. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now that's, side note, that's priestly language that in the rest of the Old Testament is used to talk about what priests do in the temple. It's really cool. That's a rabbit trail that i really wanted to go down. I'm not going to. So just put a little like bookmark in that for some other time. But God did not leave man aimless and bored. He gave them wonderful and dignified work to do. And he knew, God knows that humans, that you need a job to do. You need a purpose. You need something to work at. Not toil, but labor. So work isn't a result of the fall and sin, toil is, but work is dignified. God does it and then God gave some for us to do as well. He's providing for our joy. And he also knew that humans need companionship. So look at Genesis two eighteen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Whoa, it's the first not good in the Bible. Everything else has been good, good, very good, very good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now don't think for a minute that a woman was created because man just needed some company or assistance. That would be a shallow purpose for women and it's unbiblical. That's not the point. It's simply not what the Bible is getting at here. Look at what he says about the woman. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. I don't know a better translation for it, but I can't unhear the English words helper connotation of just being helpful, being a, you know someone who gives assistance and aid. So the Hebrew word is "Ezer." I like to hold that in my brain so that it weirds the word for me and I can start filling it in with what the Bible means with that word rather than what my kind of cultural context means with that word. So etzer. Being a etzer is not undignified and it is not subservient. That is not what it is to be woman. Etzer is a noble word fit for God himself. God is like the shield of a warrior, which aitsers him in battle by saving and protecting him. It's not just help, it's salvation, deliverance. That's what aitser means. This word is used 16 times in the Old Testament. um, Twice here, 14 additional times after that. 86% of those 14 times that word is used about God specifically. The other 14% of those times the word etzer is used is it's about God in kind of a backwards way. Like it's, it's still talking about God, but in a contrasting way. It's a word fit for God. In the garden, uh, it's, it's, it's the garden and it's this helper, this etzer that the Psalmist has in mind in Psalm 24. I lift my eyes up to the hills Where does my etzer come from? From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So God didn't just, he didn't just, he didn't merely provide companionship for the man. He did, but he provided so much more when he made woman. He made the man an etzer suitable for him. They were to fit together, someone to reflect to man what God is like and to be a bastion of safety and deliverance, a safe place. That's why Adam responds to this sheer generosity of God with incredible joy. He's so happy that he writes a song. This is the first song in the Bible. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Only poetry and melody could express the joy that Adam felt at receiving this gift from the Lord. So in the first garden, God provides for their life and God provides for their joy. And seeing this radical generosity of God, it prepares us to be astonished and dismayed at our radical rejection of God in the very next chapter, which we'll get to next week. But in that You know, in chapter three, this is pretty much all of chapter three is the story of the temptation of humanity, the sin of humanity and the exile of humanity. So I think we're doing it in three sermons actually on that one chapter, but it's in chapter three that Eve believes the serpent's lies. And when we see her being deceived, we should, this first garden should make us say, what are you doing? You had everything you wanted. You had everything you needed. Why are you listening to this beast of the field? God put man and woman to have dominion. Remember last week, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the beasts of the field. In is a beast of the field and they let it have dominion over them. What are you doing? And when Adam stands passively to the side while his beloved bride is deceived, the story of the first garden should make us say the same thing. God himself gave you this noble task of protecting the garden. What are you doing? You're supposed to work and keep it. You're supposed to care for the bride like bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And you're just standing there, Adam. Why are you throwing away all your joy and your life? So really this first garden is meant to reorient us to the horror of sin. We're supposed to feel dismayed and shocked because of the incredible for usness of God that we see in all that He's given us in the garden. He's generous. And all of the brokenness of this world is explained by simply understanding that we just said no thank you to God. He came and offered us everything, and we said no, we're good. Thanks. I'd rather have Cheerios. So that leads us to uh, point number two, which is the second garden. I'm sure you saw that coming, it's Chekhov's gun. If I say the first garden in point one, you know I have to say the second garden in point two. So a few years ago, a chef whose name I cannot recall came out with a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. You guys read that? You watched the documentary? It was pretty good, it was a Netflix documentary. The, The premise is that these four elements of cooking, salt, fat, acid, and heat, are the building blocks of all good food, all good cuisine in any culture. Every culture is using different elements of these four things in different ways to you know, make complex, wonderful dishes. Well, Genesis one through three, these first three chapters are like the salt, fat, acid, heat of the Bible. All the rest of scripture is picking up these elements that are introduced in Genesis one through three and combining them and playing with them in different ways to create these wonderful dishes through which God nourishes us. Uh, it's why these are my favorite chapters of the Bible. We never graduate out from these first few chapters. So few biblical authors though, are as good as adept at picking up these elements and crafting something wonderful as John. John, the the gospel of John, 1 John, Revelation. If John were a chef, he'd be, you know, five-star Michelin. And one of these elements that chef John takes in hand is this garden theme. In fact, if you read John's gospel, you can't get away from the fact that he's got an eye planted in Genesis the whole time. It's, it's startling. So we already know that uh, John is thinking about Genesis by the way he crafts the very beginning of his gospel, right? He's, so Genesis starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. It's commentary on Genesis. It's, it's a, yeah, you get it. But you'll notice that Genesis chapter one, you've got this big cosmic overview of creation, the heavens and the earth and the seas and the stars and the, all the all that. It's big cosmic overview. Genesis two zooms in to a garden. John does the same thing. John's gospel begins with this cosmic overview of the word and the light of the world. And by the end of the gospel, he is also zoomed in to a garden. God's got his hands in the soil. And at the end of John's gospel, Jesus himself is mistaken for the gardener. I'm not sure it was a mistake. So the first garden is meant to show us the horror of our sin. Okay, what's the second garden meant to do? Same thing, but more. Because if you've got a deadly disease that's killing you, you don't just want the doctor to say, I have a diagnosis for you. You want the doctor to say, I have a diagnosis and I know the cure. There's a way forward. And that's what we get in the second garden. But if we're gonna get that cure for our disease here, we'll have to see the radical generosity of God in the second garden too. So in the, in the story of the first garden, God provides everything that they need for life. And in the second garden, Jesus provides what you need for life. Adam was given life outside of the garden. Do you notice that in chapter two? He's formed and then breathed life in and then put in the garden, but in a strange and beautiful inversion, Jesus was given to death outside of the garden and then also was put in the garden, in the garden tomb, planted in the place that he would raise to life. Adam was given access to the tree of life so that he could live forever with God. Jesus became the tree of life so that we might live forever with God. If there's any hope of us actually getting life, like real life, It's in this garden. It's with Jesus where he was dead and raised to life on the third day, dead for our sins, taking the penalty that we deserved by our betrayal and rejection of God's generosity, but raised to life for our justification, uniting us to himself so that we have peace with God and that God accepts us as if we're Jesus, his only son. In the second garden, Jesus provides for your life, the place of his death and burial, the place of his resurrection. In other words, this mortal existence of ours, remember Adam was mortal, but could live forever because of free access to the tree of life. Well, we are mortal. This existence will end in death, eternal death for us, if we do not go and receive from the tree of life, from Jesus in that garden. Adam only had to receive generosity. He didn't have to take anything. He just had to receive it. And it's no different with us. It's no quest. It's no hero's journey. We just get to say, okay, thank you and receive from Christ. Jesus provides for your life but he doesn't stop there. Jesus also provides for your joy. What's really astonishing about Genesis 2 is not the ending that man and woman were naked and unashamed. That is astonishing, but what's truly astonishing is that man and woman were living with God and unashamed. That's a world we've never known. None of us in this room human intimacy and companionship was only ever designed as a, as a beautiful foreshadow of the real deep lasting intimacy and companionship with God. And it's what we lost in Genesis three by eating from that forbidden tree. So in other words, our sin, which at rock bottom is just accusing God of being a stingy holdout. Our sin is the thing that damages our joy. Sin robs us of our joy. There just is no happiness apart from God. No deep lasting true happiness, nothing sturdy. But Jesus wins our joy back. Those sins, which were robbing us of our joy and keeping God at arm's distance from us because we are the ones sticking out the hand saying, no, thank you. Jesus died for those sins and paid the price such that they're cast away from us as far as the East is from the West. And then he raised to life. And you know, at the end of Genesis three, we're exiled out of the garden, away from the tree of life. Jesus raised us from, back from the dead and it's like he walks over, takes us by the hand and walks us back to the father in Eden, puts our hand in the father's reconciles us to the Father, we get our joy back in Christ because we get God back. Where else are we gonna go? Some of us have a kingly feast spread before us and we're still asking for Cheerios or cardboard. But this second garden proves to us the radical generosity of God in Jesus so that we can finally turn away from our sins to God. So we can stop accusing God of being a holdout and we can receive this feast that he's just lavishing on us. Amen. In the garden, we see God's provision for our life and our joy. Jesus' death on our behalf, his defeat of death and evil, his power to take the worst evil ever committed in this world Turn it inside out to become the best and deepest good. Jesus did that in the garden. Do you often go to that garden? What do you long for? What do you want? What do you desire that hasn't already been provided for you in the garden? Is it the closeness of God? Does he feel distant? Is it a covering for your shame? Do you want God to make sense of your suffering? Hasn't he done all that? Jesus's first words in the gospel of John are, what are you seeking? It's the first thing Jesus says in this gospel account. What are you seeking? What do you want from Jesus? What do you want him to do for you? You might need to do business with God this week and actually ask yourself in his presence, what do I want? I think you'll find he's provided it, whatever it is in the garden. That's the first garden and the second garden. This last point will be shorter. I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't take you to the forever garden. You know, the beginning of human history is a garden. The pivotal main point of human history at the cross takes place in a garden and our future, the end. Can you guess? Genesis 2, remember, tells us that a river flows from Eden through the garden to water it and that the tree of life is in the midst of the garden as a beacon of the goodness and generosity of God. That's from the first book of the Bible. Now, here are the words from the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verses one through five. I think we might have it on the screen. John says, "'Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, "'bright as crystal.'" They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. If you trust Jesus, that's your future. But you might be suffering very deeply right now. And so you might think, well, John, that's nice. And I'm thinking about the garden. I'm looking at the garden, but I don't feel like I'm in a garden. And you'd be right. You're right. The curse will be gone in this day. It's not gone now. There are still horrors and atrocities of sin done by us and done to us. But if you cling to Christ, if you hold fast to the second Adam, then you will look back on this long night of the soul And I promise you, you will say it was worth it. You will. But right now we live by faith. One day we won't need faith. This day, we will not need faith. We will see, we will see and feel and know the goodness and generosity of God beyond any shadow of a doubt. Right now we need faith not blind faith, not irrational faith, not unthinking faith, the sort of faith that says everything I've seen from God says trustworthy. Jesus historically proved this to be true on the cross. So I just have to take him at his word, believe that he will continue to be who he has always been and walk by faith. As I wrap this up, I want to think about something with you from John chapter 18. Uh, As I've prayerfully been trying to prepare this sermon throughout the week. I've kind of been haunted by this verse in the best of ways. I hope it kind of haunts you too. So this is before the crucifixion, John 18 verses one and two. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there. With his disciples. Jesus often met with his disciples in the garden. He still does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we um, don't want to settle for anything less than you. That you are the very generosity of God. You are the gift of God. And it's better than we ever could have imagined. But we also recognize that right now, This world can be a dark place and frankly, your church can even be a scary place. So we ask you to continue to prove yourself, not by doing it again, but by opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ on the cross by the power of your spirit. Would you minister Christ to our hearts now and thereby lift our burdens and nourish us
0: by faith for the glory of Jesus, amen.